This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Welcome back to the Habitat Podcast. If you're new to the podcast, I'd like to tell you a little bit about it. This is a podcast that we started to try to become better habitat managers. That's our slogan. We are a bunch of regular guys working on regular high-pressured property for better wildlife habitat and better hunting. So please hit the subscribe button, tag along. I'd like to thank our sponsor at Packer Max, line of Calta Packers. I had my Packer Max standard unit out at the farm this weekend. Uh, super impressed. And you guys may have seen it in the Facebook post. Super impressed with how rugged that standard unit is. I thought it might be a little lightweight compared to the heavy-duty one. Uh, it's, it's more than I need. Um, I filled it up at home with water once it was on my, my ATV trailer. I hauled it out there. I packed down a bunch of really thatchy soil multiple times, and it was it was hard. It was flat. had a nice seed bed ready to retain moisture. And actually what I did, I used the water inside of it before I left to fill up two brand new water holes. So... It's a perfect amount to fill up two water holes, and uh, then I picked it up with one hand and threw it back on my trailer. Um, very impressed with the product. If you guys want to learn more, go to PackerMax.com. Mention this podcast, and you will get 10% off any cult of Packer you want. So it's kind of a big deal. It's, it's $50 minimum. But I'd just like to thank them again for supporting the Habitat podcast. Couldn't do it without you guys. Um Let's get right into our guest. Our guest is Nick Nation from South Central Michigan. 
Nick is the owner of a company called Nations Creations, where he designed a great product called the Habitat Hook. Uh, all the Habitat guys I follow have one of these things. I've seen it on their YouTube videos. Uh, Jake Elinger, our number one episode guest, he's got one or a couple of them. I've seen the Whitetail Properties guys with them. I mean, it's a legit piece of equipment. You know, it was it was born from necessity. It's a hook used for hinge cutting, pushing and pulling over trees. And, uh, you know, it's, I'm just excited to pick Nick's brain. Um, he's on a smaller property, 10 acres. So I think uh, that's pretty cool. His success that, that, we can, that I've seen from pictures that we can try to get into and just learn more about how he hunts that, that smaller ground and what he's done with his habitat hook that he invented to uh, improve his, his wildlife. So pretty cool. Sit back, uh, crack a cold one, enjoy yourselves, guys. We're going to get rid of this with Nick. So thanks for listening. And we're back. Nick, are you there? Yes, I am. Welcome to the show, brother. Thank you. So tonight, guys, we have Nick Nation, Nation's Creations. I want to start out the way we always do, hear about you, Nick, where you're from, your background, etc. You mind diving into that for us? Sure. Yep. Um, well, as you know, Nick Nation, Nation's Creation is the business I got. Um, started out. A few years back, uh, probably back in 2002, my wife came up with the name, she's girlfriend at the time, but she wrote it on the bench top at one time, and uh, that name just kind of carried through. And then when I started this, um, came up with this idea and needed to move to a business, um, kind of just stuck. It was always in the back of my mind, like, how cool would that be to have my own business and stuff? And right now it's a small, but... Yeah, uh, that was back when I was living with my parents. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> quite a while ago. So um, I was working, I was working three jobs at the time, going to school, um, college, and you know, back in those days, you know, it was just totally different compared to now. But um, yeah, I went to school as a um, for manufacturing engineering. Um, I became a um, quality engineer and manufacturing engineer, kind of like a dual role. Oh, wow. uh, right out of right out of school, and just kind of worked my way through and got to where I'm at now. I'm a quality engineer now, um, working in Charlotte, Michigan. Uh, we build fire trucks called Spartan Motors. Oh, nice. So it's a it's a pretty unique job. Um, they also do other um, chassis and stuff, motorhome chassis, um, the FedEx, UPS type box trucks, Isuzu, um, little chassis stuff like that. It's a pretty big uh, operation. So I've been there for about six years now. Um, I live in Charlotte as well. I moved here from, uh, I bounced around initially a couple different times. Uh, about nine moves in the course of ten years. Holy cow, man. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was, you'd bounce, you know, from, from the time I moved out of my parents' house to then going to school and then finding my first job, moving down to Rochester Hills area and living in the, the ur- suburbs, the urban area. That was this. That was terrible. Never Gross. will I ever do that again. So, yeah, I'm. Uh, <laughs> I, I feel you there. Um, that that two three one area code. Where where did you grow that up? Where are your from, parents from? Oh, that was from Big Rapids when I was uh, going to Ferris. Okay. So I kept the phone number and just because I had a bunch of contacts and um, wanted to carry it on. And yeah, every once in a while I get someone that calls and I'm like two three one. Like that's up north. I said no, it's. 
it is, but you know, it's it, this it travels where I go. <laughs> yeah, no, it goes all the way down to Muskegon, actually. Um, yeah. And Ferris, yeah, I was a uh, Chippewa, so we came over <laughs> to your neck of the woods and drank some beer. And you guys, t- tell you what, you guys could drink some beer over there at Ferris. Yes, they could. <laughs> Holy cow! Uh, so, they anyways, could. Big Rapids, and then you uh, moved around a little bit. Now you're in Charlotte. Do yep. you know um, Jim Strader? Yes, I do. Okay. Yep, he's down in all that. We um, had him on a couple weeks ago, actually. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, oh, that's uh, right. You know, when you first sent me the. Uh, the the podcast thing I I checked it out and I, I listened to his um about the pheasants and his property I've been to his property a couple times now okay well cool tour that yeah when I was first getting into the deer habitat stuff um I mean I've been doing it for I don't know twelve fourteen years now really wow yeah when I first got into doing the food plots I had a I had a buddy in college that um I met he's a really good friend now. Like, he got me into, you know, the QDMA-type stuff and doing food plots. And at the time, I was I was the same, you know, typical per- – I shouldn't say typical Michigan hunter, but you know how it is. Yep. <laughs> I, I go out and, uh, you know, shoot, shoot the first little buck I'd see. And then as I started shooting those little bucks, I kind of just – I wanted to make it more of a challenge for myself, so I limited myself to six points and better. And then, you know, that became to the point where, well, I got this basket, a little basket, which <laughs> Jim Browker says a lot. That's always a great analogy. I got this basket full of baskets. What am I going to do with them? I'm not hanging them on the wall. There's just really no point. So I just kind of moved up and challenged myself. I got into the deer habitat stuff, food plots. At first it was food plots. And then it was um, around 2010, 2009, um, my friend, he went to uh, the boot camp, the Tony the Pratt boot camp. Oh, yeah. And we learned learned about hinge cutting and uh, stuff like that. And then he talked to me about it and told me, hey, you got to go here and check this out. And so I did that. And that was kind of like the um, like trigger to go to this crazy nut habitat stuff. And... You know, over the years, you've, I've learned um, what works for me, what doesn't work, um, the do's and don'ts, and yeah. uh, a bunch of that stuff. No, that's awesome. Um, well, I've heard a lot about that, that boot camp from Tony LePrat way back when. Um, he was actually always set up at one of the trade shows when I volunteered for Ducks Unlimited. He was always set up there and always look at his pictures and this and that. I, I never took the course, but... Um, it seemed it that it sparked a lot of guys' interest after they it took did. it, especially. It, it, was, uh, it was expensive. It was a huge amount of money at the time because I was, you know, well, I had been out of college for a couple of years then. But my wife, you know, she's like, what in the world are you doing? You're going to spend this much money and you're getting what? Right. <laughs> and uh, I was like, well, you know, it's, it's, I want to learn. And. I, I would say, you know, the, the one thing that I took away from that class that was really opened my eyes was deer behavior, to watch deer behavior. It's, I mean, it's just something so simple, but it's just for whatever reason, I never clicked in my mind to watch the deer. When I'm in the sand now, I'm watching the deer and paying attention to what they're doing and trying to understand why. And I feel that makes me better at do, creating the habitat and the stuff, the work that I do more so than just going in and whacking down some trees and throwing in some food plots, stuff like that. I want to understand why the deer 
are doing what they're doing. And going to that class, he, he some of the things he said and pointed out, I think that is kind of one of now I was glad that that happened because that opened my eyes to that. Okay, no, I think that's um, a very important piece of the puzzle, and I'm not sure people, including myself, always ask ourselves that when probably should be. And, I mean, that goes along with just why a deer is even in a certain area or, or why it's better where it is or why it's traveling in what direction. I mean, yeah. once you start to yep. ask that question instead of, oh, I just saw a couple of deer tonight and leave it at that, right. I think you kind of evolve as right. as a hunter. Yeah. I mean, you know, you'll, you you watch their behavior and, how, like, the dullest, for example, I'll, I'll watch them get up, see how they act, see how they move. Um, I, can, I can tell if they've got up from a bed or if they've, they're moving through from an, from another area. I, I can get that idea to know where they're bedding, how long they've been on their feet, you know, and um, okay. seeing what they're eating. And it's, when, when, you're able, when you create the habitat and you see a doe that's just got up, she's licking herself and, you know, the fawns cleaning off the fawns, or the fawns are cleaning themselves up, or they're um, taking a dump or doing whatever. You know, just the way they act, I can tell. Okay, I'm pretty sure that they bedded right there, real closely. I have bedding there. That's where that group's at. Okay. Um, and stuff like that. And this, you, while you watch them as they're moving through the woods, if they're looking behind them, you know, the signal that there's other deer coming, and just. You watch them, the, the branches that they lick and eat and rub their nose on. It might not necessarily be a scrape, but that's 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 the way they're communicating to other deer that they've been there. And other deer behind them will come through and do the same thing. <clears throat> it's just the things that you watch, you, you gain so much more intel on what's going on rather than just, oh, I've seen a couple deer. <laughs> I couldn't agree more, man. I'm glad you, you mentioned that. And maybe we'll get into that further Um here in a few. Now, do you want to go into your product or maybe your property a little bit first? Whatever. I go to the product so people yeah, know what, you know, what, so the habitat hook, that's something that I created specifically for doing hinge cutting. Um, most people know what hinge cutting is. You're taking the tree, tipping it sideways. Um, it continues to grow type deal. And so I made this product as a result of my poor efforts at doing hinge cutting myself, <clears throat> I uh, when I first first came home from the class, and I, I I'm glad it wasn't the, my property that I was doing this time <laughs> because it would have been it didn't turn out that great. But um, I, I remember taking the day off work to do this hinge cutting work in this this corner of this property, and. Uh, I spent all day doing like a 50 foot by 50 foot area, and I was so sore. I, I was trying to shimmy up trees, throw ropes up there to pull them over. And I'm like, this is ridiculous. I was like, how in the world can you, you know, be efficient at doing this? And being the engineer I am, I was like, I I got an idea. So I had came home and I had a tubing bender that um I had for another project, and I uh. Hurry on! I just bent up a piece of tube into a, a U shape, and it was just a piece of conduit. And I had some uh, teeth that I cut out and welded on, and I ended up cannibalizing a, uh, a 
It's like one of them patio swing sets. I had like the little push button <laughs> detent things. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. I ripped that apart and I had another piece of tube that slid in. And I mean, it, it was really crude. But, that is best. I love it. <laughs> it was really crude, but um, I tell you, it was just the hook portion. So it was just for pulling. But um, me and a buddy went out and we were using that. And I was like, oh my God, this is, this is, this slick. This, this works great. And, uh, it was uh Tony Smith. He was uh yeah, I know one Tony. of them. Yeah, he he's the one that really helped me get going on this because you know he was the one that you know we're there with us trying it out, and he's like, man, that that thing really works. And he's like, you got something here. So I was like, you know, I'm gonna try to run with it. So I came up with a uh, a more um, professional design, and he he I got it the first ten to him. I think he sold the first ten for me. Um, and that was the beginning. I mean, it, from then on, it just it, it took a number of years. It took three years before it started going, three, four years. And then as it started this kind of word of mouth spread and, you know, I, then I started the business and then I got the website going and it's just kind of grown each year. And uh, so, yeah, that's kind of how it started. No, that's well, I awesome. Guess that, I love that the entrepreneur side of things, man. And uh, that's, that's so cool. You you made a product and you launched it and it works and people love it. Um, can you explain kind of in detail what this looks like? I mean, I'll post a picture up on Facebook, but uh, you know, maybe for the listeners, describe kind of exactly what we're looking at here. Yeah, it almost looks. I mean, if you were to think like a shepherd's hook you know, that people put in their yards, that. But I mean, it's just it's a T handle, so you have um it's seven foot long it's got a hook at one end uh has the pusher teeth now so it has a kind of like a push point with a radius half circle on the push point so you can push or you can pull um then i got the uh the extendable versions have uh atv grip sounds so you got a nice soft rubber grip for when it's cold um then the the extendable ones they slide out they have a six foot extension inside so you're getting up there 12 to 13 foot so you can really get the leverage. That's where you um, you, get, you you don't have to cut as far through the tree in order to get your hinge, you know, get the tree to come over. So with a, a thicker hinge, that tree is going to have a better chance of staying together and a lot higher survival rate. So Perfect. I do most I do most of mine by pushing um, rather than pull. Just when you pull, you got the tree coming at you, and also you can. That's when guys will get the their hooks bent up. And you get caught up in the tree, and then you're at the mercy of the tree coming down. Oh, wow. And so I usually push with the push point. I'll use the pole to pull over smaller trees or pull them into position or if they get hung up in grapevines, stuff like that. And, uh, yep. Very so nice. It works, it works really well. And that hook on the end, um, for, for people who are trying to see this, it's like a it's a wider radius hook, too. It's not just like a small little hook. It's probably – what's your radius on that, would you say? Yeah, like, it's a – from the inside diameter, it would be roughly about six, six and a half inches. Okay. So, I mean, it'll well, – the way it's bent, because it's not a full 180 degrees, it'll, you can reach it around an eight, nine-inch diameter tree. Perfect. Perfect, yeah. I, there are also some good YouTube videos with guys using it. Um, I know Jim has one up, and – and some other ones. Yeah, you type in a uh, habitat hook in Google or uh, anywhere on YouTube, and it should come up with quite a few different research results that guys have 
um, posted stuff up. I need to get some more videos up myself. Every time I go to the woods, I always forget to take the dang video. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, I know, especially the the way of the world these days. Everybody wants videos and, and content like that. So, yeah, you'll have to get some more going, man. Yeah, I'm hoping this year I got a friend that's going to help me out this year um, so I can have some more free time. Because once uh, Thanksgiving hits, usually it's like a switch. People have sat out over their properties. They're sitting in their tree stands, going through YouTube videos, reading articles, and all of a sudden they just the orders start coming in. And oh, really? Get so busy. Yeah, I get so busy. I, I can't work a full-time job and then come home and do this without, you know, doing much of other stuff. Yep, yep. So. Okay, well, that tells us a story. What do these hooks run normally? Do you have a... Yep, anywhere from 90 bucks for the fixed one up to 225 for the aluminum extendable ones. And the aluminum ones are pretty slick because they're lightweight. They won't rust. It's square tube, so you don't have uh, the indexing um, rotation like with the steel ones. They're round tube. So sometimes it's a little bit trickier to find the, the button detent for it to pop in. Not too much of a big deal once you get using it. But the aluminum ones have a square tube, and they, uh, they're really nice. I mean... I don't see how I can really improve upon it much more. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's good. That's good. Now, I guess I want to kind of get into, you You have your product, you know it works, and then you moved to Charlotte. What What did you do next? How, how do you verify that, that this thing works, and, and how do you go about using it? And let's hear some more about your property, um, where you've put it okay. to the test. Yeah, so here in Charlotte, I'm only on 10 acres, but I've done a lot on this 10 acres. I also have um, a buddy's property that's, uh, he's got a 40 that we've been doing. He bought his around the same time I got mine, so six years. And another friend where we originally started, um, he said he's lived there his whole life. So we've really been doing the hinge cutting and heavy habitat on there since like 2009, 2010. Um, I, we've had... All three properties have been successful. Um, I, I guess I shouldn't. The one with the 40 is the deer are there. We haven't been able to seal the deal, I guess. <laughs> okay. So we have uh, this year there's a six-year-old that we've been after for three years now. Um, he, he he doesn't stay on the property. He comes, he comes like we had him in June. The last couple of years we've had him through the summer, and um, we're not sure if he got hit by a car. He said he. He's seen a big buck that was hit by a car in uh, late June, and we haven't seen him since. So we're kind of nervous that our big target deer for third year in a row is no longer around. But we'll see. We got I checked the cams today, and uh, there's a good buck on camera that we haven't seen yet. But um, the properties have changed over the years. So you hear people talk about if you're seeing bucks in the summer, you're not going to see them in the fall. Um I think there's definitely some truth to that because as our properties have increased and um, uh, I guess the thicker they've got, we're holding a ton more does. I mean, we're tons of does. And come fall, we're starting to, those does will be around, but we're seeing, then we start seeing the bucks. So them bucks just do not like that real thick stuff during the summer from what I've seen. So, I moved a camera a couple of weeks ago um, on the back side of the the 40 that we have, where it's it's um, the 
neighboring parcel is Park Effect. You know, you can see right through it. And in the last two weeks, I got more pictures of box in that location than we have in the last six weeks. In the, in and the Park Effect situation. Yep. And wow. it's facing right into the Park, park Effect. It's right on the property line. Um, there's a deer running wrong alongside the edge. And I have about 100 yards away another camera face into his property where it's thicker, and it was nothing but does and fawns. <clears throat> and the same thing is not, it's the same way on the other side of the property, 300 yards away. We get we got more pictures of bucks over there because it was open towards a ag field and uh, more open on a neighboring parcel. But you move into another camera area that we have where it's thicker, and it's just those and fawns. So, I, I mean, I don't know if the exact science to it, but so far from what I've heard in my testing and my own experience, it's turning out to be true. Okay, so your your properties are becoming super thick by the way of hinge cutting with the habitat. Yep, hook. we do. Um, yep, the hinge cutting mainly, or um, just removing the canopy. So we'll cut trees down. Some will let lays. A lot of them will pull out for firewood. Um, we've been using the, I use the habitat hook to do the hinge cutting for the travel corridors and bedding areas mainly, um, and screening. So over the last four years, we have, um, access trails that we've cut in on the, uh, the bordering edges of the property. Um, took a tractor in last year and cleared a trail along an old fence line. Um, it's nearly a half mile long, but we only hunt the outside edges. We only hunt the perimeters, and we have our stands facing in. So that allows us to access through the outer edges and um, not necessarily go inside the property and hunt the internal area. It works great for wind. It works great for um, access. And um, but we create the travel corridors to run past the stand. So or, um, whether it be, like, switchgrass plantings, um, Egyptian wheat, hinge cuts, different things that we do to um, get those deer to focus their movements and travels past the sand locations. Okay, so when you're talking about the travel corridor type hinge cut, what exactly does that look like and how are you doing that with these trees? Um, say say you have a rectangular property or maybe just that fence line, for instance. What, what are you doing to that to, to create this? Well, in that case, that was a um, what we did on... Through the main part of it was we just literally bulldozed our way through with the tractor. And then on the, one of the sides, so one of the sides is facing out towards a um, crop field. Um, we don't plan the deer, on any deer being out there and seeing us. It's just the way it's set up, the deer aren't there. Plus, we have a bunch of trees that screen our movement there. Now, the other side is facing towards the inside of the property where we would suspect to have deer. And we did what was called edge feathering there. So we took a lot of the uh, the trees and tipped them inward, like towards the inside of the property. So they, what it did, it does two things. One, the, the hinge cuts, when you when you lay the trees down, they stay intact. They can continue to grow. And being out there on the edge of the field, they get all the sunlight they need to stay living. Um, that's one of the things that people claim that hinge cutting don't work is because they'll do hinge cutting in the middle of the woods and they've taken the tree that was once at treetop height getting sunlight and they tip it down inside the forest and it can no longer get sunlight and it dies and then they say well hinge cutting don't work well it does 
if if the tree can continue to get sunlight. So that's a great point. I don't I don't <laughs> think I, I I knew that. I mean that that makes sense. If you do enough hinge cutting, you're going to open up the canopy to where they're all going to yeah. get sunlight. But if you don't do enough, <sighs> yeah, you're essentially putting the tree in the shade. Right. So. That was one of the, I guess I could say, that's one of the mistakes I did early on was I was trying to create these tunnels and travel corridors where you had all these over all these um, branches and trees overtopped, like you're creating a tunnel, and that just didn't work for me very well. <laughs> so we'll come back to that. Yeah. But going back to the, uh, the, the access trail, we did the edge feathering, so we took the um, – and a lot of – and this was done in the areas where it was um, more open. So if we're walking down the trail and also we get to an area that you could see through the trees and out into the um, – through the woods or into the property, we'd hinge cut those trees um, into the property so they're not falling away – so they're falling away from the, our access trail. And now, three years later, those have grown up, and it's – become a wall like the deer don't pass through it unless we cut in a trail you can't see through it with either foliage on or off and it's just it's like a barrier so, so it's, where are your stands at in relation to that would they be towards the direction the trees are falling they in the, those, in this case we have them um, so it's going to be right on the edge on the edge or within 10 yards off that trail and the the areas that are where our stands are located are areas that um, we don't necessarily have the edge feather feathering in there. Um, they're it's hard to explain. It's like a little pot. Leave it a little more open. Um, right. Exactly. There instead of being blocked off. Right. So we're just trying to block our main movements. Um, we don't want to be traveling across a wide open area, you know, 50, 60 yards that we're walking through where any deer that's, you know, 50, 100 yards away that could be looking in that direction or whatever could see us. We want some type of barrier there to be able to screen our movement. And it's worked really well for the last couple of years. It's just every year we're, we're both blown away by the amount of new growth. All that sunlight's getting in there, and the trees are growing anywhere from 4 to 10 foot a year. And in just a couple more years, we're going to have to hinge cut it again. Now, I have a question for you on that. Um, because I kind of have this question for, for my property. Where you are making your access trail, say, along one border of your property, and you have an area where the deer cross in and out of your property real heavily, um, what are you doing in that specific spot? You're going to have to walk across it. So yep. are you trying to um, block it off so they stay in your property, or are you trying no, to... No, that... that that will work to an extent you will not keep them in your property they will um you can they'll kind of come to sometimes they'll come to that barrier if you were to block it and they'll travel along the edge of it but it seems like no matter what you do them deer will always find a hole okay. to be able to get through and I, i've gone away from trying to fence off my property because i want the deer to come in and out um i can't I, we have not been able to successfully hold deer on our property unless they're does. The does will stick close because the does bed close to the food. True. But True. And bucks, I guess I wouldn't expect that the the deer to stay there. But um, if they're going to cross through 
these little gaps and they're going to end up coming across your access trail. Do you worry about that or nope, what do you do? No, nope, to... because my boots, um, my boots stayed in a sealed container all year long. Um, I, I have uh, just rubber boots. I keep them sealed up. I don't leave them out exposed or anything like that. I douse them down with scent killer before I go out on every hunt. I mean, dripping wet. Um, I'm not getting dressed inside of a, a or in the back of a truck or in a barn or anything like that. They they come out of the back of my truck in the tote. I'm standing at the back of my truck. Obviously, the truck's not running. Right. Um, and I put my boots on while standing on them on top of my tote lid. Um, I put that dump a little bit of activated carpet carbon in there every now and then, help absorb scent. And I've had several deer come across my trails, and the only thing they ever detect that I've noticed in the last four years is ground disturbance. Really? They they're not smelling me. They they will smell that ground. So if I'm coming across a run that I know is there, I will try to take that extra big step and just kind of walk across it. Yeah. And I do heel to toe. I don't shuffle my feet. I do heel to toe and just walk real gently and then once you pass that carry on um i've had a couple deer an hour i've walked i mean i was completely scent free first time wearing the clothes the clothes i do a pretty good scent regimen dang deer will still smell you if they're downwind yeah it's, it's so hard but you you minimize um how bad they bust you i guess so i've walked across the fields i've had deer they smell it, and they just—they're curious. Like they—they they smell that dirt or something, and they will walk or follow that to a certain point. I've had them walk all the way to underneath my stand, and they just—they didn't act alarmed like it was human scent. They just act like they are curious about something else. Okay. So no, that—I that haven't—I haven't had any scent bust my trail since I started wearing the rubber boots and spraying down really good and keeping my boots out of any contaminated area. Um, for the last several years now. So, but what you can do, um, or what we do do, when we have those trails coming through, if we don't want them there, you can move them. So we will block that trail, but open up another trail somewhat close by or cut it one at an angle so that they will follow that. Okay. No, I got you there. I just, um, right now I'm not using that that north border at all to access, so I only hunt pretty much the southern edge of the property, um, but I just didn't know if I should even mess with that someday or, or not. I understand what you're doing with the edge feathering, the the um, perimeter access trail. I, I love all that. I totally get that. I'm just not sure if I want to even go across the other side and risk it yet because it's such a little funnel right where I would walk in the woods. Is I mean, it's almost yeah, like doing sometimes, it. Yeah, sometimes it's hard. We have um, on this 40-acre piece, we have, it's a natural funnel. And over the years, you know, five years now, we were, five years ago we cut our first trail in, and this is, it's just a walking trail. But every year we go through, we spray it. Every year we take the weed trimmer, cut it out. So that when we're walking through, we don't have any um, sticks or weeds or bushes or anything rubbing our clothing. Um, it's mostly just a dirt trail, and it kind of snakes and weaves through the edge of a uh, the property, which runs right from out of a swamp into a hardwoods that we've um, hinge cut a couple years ago. 
and they just pass back and forth. But we got to get be able to walk through there to access <clears throat> further back in the property. Right. No, I get it. Um, awesome. Oh, that, that makes perfect sense. Now, what else are you doing on even your 10-acre property? I mean, a lot of guys who listen to this podcast have smaller properties that they own or are able to work on and hunt. Myself, yep. I, I only have 15, so I totally feel yeah. you on the 10-acre on the <laughs> well, side. Um, how is yours set up? And, and Well, mine's... Yeah, Mine is a that. little little unique because um, my house sits dead center. <laughs> so I have this 10-acre, almost square chunk, and a house that's right smack dab in the center. Um, now, one so, would think off the bat that's a bad setup. It, you would think, but I've uh, – the way I – so in my case, I hunt from the inside out. Um I have, you know, I don't have a ton of mowed yard, but I have um, planted switchgrass around the, um, see, be the south side. So I have a small little three or three and a half acre section of woods that runs north to south on the back side of the property. And then up by the road, I have a, this old fence line, but it's grown up. It's, it used to be farmed 25 years ago. So all that um, regen's coming up, all the trees are coming up, cherries. Um, ash, elm, box elder, I have a lot of that growing in. Just in the six years I've been here, it's gotten a lot thicker. Well, I hunt from the inside out, so I literally walk off my back deck, and I'm in a tree 60 to 70 yards away. And, um, I mean, I see does almost every hunt. I see smaller bucks almost every hunt. Last year I missed my second buck, biggest buck ever. He was about 125-inch nine-point. Wow. Um, 30 yards from the corner of my barn. I mean, I was up in a tree, and he was chasing doe. I, um, actually, the uh, neighbor had seen him uh, a day or two days before run across the field, so I hurried up and checked some cameras. And it was crazy. I had four, I have four cameras running on my property, and he was on two of them. I was able to move cameras around, and I had it dialed into where to – I was actually off location. I, I should have hunted at the front of the property instead of the back. Well, I hunted at the back based on where my trail cameras were saying he was at. And he was like 15 feet off the road, the front of the road. And I was like, no way. And I was, so I hung a tree stand up there um, right after I got out of work. I left work about 30 minutes early, came home, threw up a tree stand. I was a hot, sweaty mess. I said, well, that's all stunk up. So I moved 200 yards away to a stand I already had. And I was sitting up there and all of a sudden, I hear this loud grunt. You know, you know that that uh, that grunt call, that snort—not the snort wheeze. It's the one that uh, the buck growl. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah, yeah. I've never that, heard it in the dude, woods, but oh my god, it was the freakiest thing ever. <laughs> I heard it. <laughs> I heard something like that. I'm like, what is? I heard it three times, and I'm trying to look. I was like, there's no houses in that direction. I thought maybe kids or something, and. I mean, the closest house in that direction is almost a mile away. And all of a sudden, I see this buck with the, this, the antlers just running through the um, through this uh, CRP-type grass, chasing this doe, letting out that growl. I'm like, oh, my God, it's freaking me out. I didn't know what the heck it was. <laughs> wow. So, so keep, he, yeah, ended up chase, he ended up dogging that doe for a good half an hour. And then um, it was probably... 
20, 30 minutes before light. I watched him go past the tree stand I set up three times that night, and I was just like, I was pissed. I was like, you got to be kidding me. I mean, it would be a 10-yard, 15-yard shot max, broadside, and he's going right through long side of the road in front of my house. And <clears throat> so I'm facing away. I'm just waiting. I lost sight of him. And then all of a sudden I hear that, you know, the, the sound of deer footprints running through the – down one of my uh, – my travel corridors that I had cut in through the, the grass and through the trees, and he's chasing us, doe, and all of a sudden I stop. She stops right at the base of my tree, <clears throat> and I peek over my shoulder, and I see him standing there. I'm like, oh, my God, I didn't cut out a shooting lane here because I didn't plan on a deer being almost off the corner of my pole barn. And uh, I, I'm trying to shimmy around to see what kind of hole I can make to be able to get an arrow through, and the doe was right at the almost at the base of my tree staring up at me. And I didn't realize it. I thought she had already ran by. So she busted and ran around um, about 30 yards away. Um, it was about a 32-yard shot, chip shot. You know, I'd practiced all year, no problem. Um, had a brand-new bow, and I settled in the pin because the buck, had, he came back and was trying to get, get downwind to her and find out where she, she went. He didn't have a clue what was going on. And uh, settled the pin in let the shot go and watch my arrow just kind of like deflect off something. <clears throat> he ran off and all of a sudden heard, started chasing the doe again. I was, I was mad. I was like, I don't know what happened. So after I got down, I found I cut a, uh, a branch, a little twig the size of my pinky, right dead nuts. It, the arrow was flying perfect and it hit that twig. Never even noticed it was there. And he got shot three days later about a, three quarters of a mile away. <laughs> oh, no. Man. So that was, uh, that was, it was fun though. I mean, to be able to use the cameras and get it dialed in to zone pretty much where to go. He was on the hot doe that was here at the property that was sticking close by. Um, I actually hunted, I took the next morning off work and watched him until noon the next day, uh, across the field from me. He's about half, well, not quite half mile away. But tending a doe, he stayed right with her all day long. And then I got out of work that night. He was still there. Wow. In the same field all day long. That's crazy. What day was that on? November 1st. Yep, that's the day I killed my deer. Yep, it was uh, a good day. That, that time of, like, October 26th, 27th to November 2nd for here really seems to be the peak of the seeking phase. And um, they're really running those does hard. Okay. Well, and then my, that's a great my story, son, man. My son shot his first deer last year. He was, uh, let's see, he was eight last year, just turned nine. So he shot his uh, first deer with a crossbow right off the, right out back, you know, sitting on a little double man stand that we got and coming down the travel corridor that I planted. They had just got up out of bedding about 50, 60 yards away, and uh, which is right on the edge of the property line, beds that I had put in through hinge cutting and stuff. And, you know, same type of deal. We just follow the plan. So your plan, explain to me, if you can, uh, your your habitat plan and how would you come up with it? Well. I just kind of want to give the listeners a, a picture. Your house is in the middle, which we learned yep. doesn't really matter because you're, you're having <laughs> great opportunities. Um, but you're hunting it smart. You've hinge cut, cover. Explain what, what the square looks like with your house in the middle. So um, you come off right off the, the dirt, I'm on a dirt road, not a paved road, um, 
Montgomery down in, pulled in the house, and then I've probably got I probably only got forty to forty yards on one side of the house, maybe twenty yards on the other before you get into actual habitat. Um, I've got switchgrass um, bordering majority of the the mowed area, so um, all along the areas where I mow, I either have um, trees that have grown or bushes, or I have switchgrass. So you almost can't see the house once you step out of the mowed yard, except for the roof. So the uh, a lot of times I'll, I'll be out in the yard doing work and stuff. The deer will not move, but as soon as I take two steps off my mowed area and into the weeds or any, anything, the deer will bust. <laughs> it's just, wow. It's crazy. They'll hold pretty tight. But um, so I got the um, switchgrass surrounding the or the trees, switchgrass combination of things, you know, bordering the house. And then once you get into beyond that, then I have um, uh, bush hog trails that I've cut, that I've tilled up and planted with perennials, um, clover, chicory, that are my kind of like winding travel corridors. Um, through the wooded area in the back, I have a um, uh, annual planting. I'll plant peas or I'll plant rye. Um, I did have clover in there for a couple of years, and I just took that out last year and put peas in. Um, I don't eat brassicas. I don't know why. I haven't had any luck getting them to eat that. But, um, yeah, I just have a higher circular movement. I guess I should say. So once you get, other than having to cross the driveway in the front, which is only about 15 to 20 foot of open area before they're back in the cover, um, they can follow the trails all the way around my property, in and out of bedding, um, picking their way at small little food plots, and staying in cover the whole time. I like it. That's what I was going to ask about that circular movement. And how would you come up with that idea? Um, well, it's, uh, who, who came out? I know, uh, Jake Ellinger has some stuff on that. Um, Jeff Sturgis. You know, I, I would, a lot of this stuff, I mean, I'm not no wizard. I don't come up with this, all this stuff <laughs> on my own, so I can't, I can't take credit for it. But I, I take the things I learn and experiment different ideas. And, um, like they say, every property is different. Every, um, the train features, you just, you, you eventually learn, uh, what works and what don't. Um, not everything works for me. I mean, there, there's some some things that stand sites that I set up that look awesome. Like if I was a deer, I'd use it absolutely. But no, nope, you put a trail camera on and get a couple pictures. I just I don't get it. Hmm. So some things I figured out. But um, I went to a lot of property um, tours early on. Um, the southeast QDMA branch had some good ones. I've been up to the northeast branch, the northwest branch, um, all the properties all over the place. So you get to see what other people do and uh, read the articles, the books. I mean, I was into reading the, as much information as I could possibly get. I was trying to research um, all the different things I could, reading different books. Um, Bill Vale wrote a book about... Uh, you know, there's a lot of stuff on wind and the moon phase, um, wind currents and all that. The moon phase is, didn't really work out for me. There's a couple certain scenarios that are, are key, but um, the wind, 
uh, paying attention to wind and topography and how that affects wind currents and thermals. That was, um, I definitely recommend that. Um, Bill Vale, and I forget what the name of the book is, but he's got some good stuff in there. Something about pressured deer. What's that? Is it something about pressured deer? Hunting pressured whitetails or yeah. something like that. I, I yep. think you're right. I think you're right. Um, I was actually just listening to a podcast with him on it today, actually. Um, oh. Yeah, he's on a couple of the Big Buck Registry podcasts, but yeah, he's, he's a Michigan boy, right? Um, yeah, yep. And it seems like we have a lot of habitat guys uh, from Michigan. We I do. Think it's probably because we have some of the toughest deer hunting, and we need exactly. to make exactly we need to make things happen. Otherwise, it's not going to work out for us. Um, yeah, that's definitely why. Now you mentioned something there that sparked my interest. I want to kind of hear how you pin that buck down with the trail cameras. But uh-huh. first, I want to hear a little bit more about your property before we we move on. Um, so you you have your house in the middle. You have your switchgrass and like a hinge cut border or tree border, and then you have your your brush hogged food plots and travel corridors throughout in a circular motion around the the edge of your your ten acres. Then you have stand sites based on the wind. How do you use the wind? And, okay, and your so, hinge cutting to kind of determine where you're going to sit on your property. I think this can kind my, of paint a picture for a lot of people and, and help them out with the smaller property stuff. Yeah, in my case, since I'm hunting from the inside out, I'm uh, most unfortunate because the wooded area and is located um, on the west side of my property. So I, any westerly winds I hunt are going to blow into my house or blow across the the mode area where deer aren't going to be um so it works out really well like that uh the new stand i put out um that had by the road was kind of tricky because it can really only be hunted on a um well i can still be hunted on a west wing because it blows out across the road but there's a little bit of an east wind i can hunt it on so it's hard um Fortunately, we get more west days blowing westerly winds than yeah. anything else. So I can come home from work. I can wear stinky clothes and climb up my tree and um, usually have a good chance at seeing deer and not having them smell me. Um, and the, the, air, the stands that I do have, I have them blocked off at the bottom so the deer can't really get to the base of my tree to smell around and know if I was there or not. Which, and how do you do that? I just keep the briar patches up, don't mow around the front side at all. Um, I'll stack up cut trees around the uh, around the edges of it. The only thing I have is a little trail going in. Nice. And that comes off my mowed yard. Nice. Um, so you're actually, that, your wind is actually blowing at the house, which mm-hmm. the deer already smell you at the house all the time anyways. Right. Yeah. And if there's, I like that. There, the deer won't be up in the yard anyway. I, it's weird. I hardly ever, ever see deer in my yard occasionally i'll have a doe walk across the front yard or something like that or during the springtime but they they stick to that cover just uh just in the uh off the edge so they a lot of the hinge cuts i've i've done over the years it's all they've grown up there to the point where um you almost you go through a couple different phases when you you first open up that canopy and do your hinge cuts you'll get a ton of growth the first few years um, you're going to have usually have a lot of briars and nasty stuff growing in. 
Um, for me, a lot of times I have to go in and I have to keep that maintained for the first three or four years um, if the deer don't keep it browsed back. So I cut the trails in. I have to go in there about at least once a year and spray it, trim it. it once that, that spring hits, man, that stuff grows like crazy. Yeah. It's, it's hard to maintain it. But once the trees get to a certain height where they start preventing that, all that sunlight from getting down to the, the ground, then briars will just start to disappear and not grow anymore. And then you're back to a um, uh, a woods that, you know, is nav- navigable. Nav- is that a word? Yeah, navigable. Navig- yep, I got you. <laughs> so um, it can be too thick for deer, you know. When, when you do those first few hinge cuts and you take that canopy, canopy out, uh, it, it can grow too thick, and the deer will skirt the edges or avoid it. So that's why we cut trails on. No, I like that. I'm glad you mentioned that. Um, we've talked a little bit about hinge cutting on the show so far. I'm still trying to get Jim on here to really give us a lesson, but a couple of the other guys I've talked to in Pennsylvania, um, a lot of guys – it doesn't work as well for them, or it might be too thick, or the overhead cover wasn't what they were looking for. So maintaining them after you cut them in or or produce them, if you will, seems to be just as important. So a couple keys to hinge cutting. Um, when you hinge cut, you don't want to have any dead ends. That was one of the big mistakes I did early on. I was gung-ho. I went in there. I leveled the woods. I mean, I... I cut all these trees. I made an absolute tornado zone, and that's exactly what it looked like. I'm like, oh, yeah, this is what you want, this thick cover. The deer can crouch in here, and they can be hidden. No, no, that didn't work. (laughs) Um, I ended up at the 50-acre parcel that Buddy's got. We did that same thing in a a two-acre area, and we took that two-acre area and turned the the outer, we call it the brush pile because that's what it looked like. And we, the deer turned it into used it like a hard edge. They would not go through the inside of that. They would not bed in the inside. There was too many dead ends. And dead ends, I mean, if you're crouched down on deer's level and you're looking ahead or looking in any direction, you see down trees everywhere where it's going to be hard for you to jump out, they're a lot less likely to use it. Okay. So after three years of uh, that being a brush pile, that area, uh, we said, hey, this isn't working. You know, we had a couple stands set up to try to take advantage of that, and we had a couple trails cut in, but it just wasn't working. Um, so what we did is we went through and cut a, a bunch of the the dead dead areas or the the um, dead ends in there, and we we had trails. We had two trails going through it, and we'd keep them sprayed, but the deer just wouldn't use them. You know, they you get a does groups use them here and there, but the bucks and stuff wouldn't use them. But once we went in there and we cut out all those dead ends, and at this time the um, the tree growth, all the hinges and all the sprouts, sucking shoots grew were grow had grown up enough to keep the briars and stuff from growing too aggressively. <clears throat> we went in once those dead ends were gone, the deer are using it like crazy now. They bed in there now. They go through it back and forth. Um, so that that was a mistake. I had done the same thing at a couple other properties that I had worked at with um, buddies that we had done, and um, we ended up in the end going in and cutting out these area, these dead, um, dead ends so that the deer can go through there a lot more easily. They don't want to feel confined. They want cover, but they want to feel, feel like they can flee and escape in any direction when they need. 
Awesome. I think that's great information. And when are you going in there and maintaining? Um, we, like, usually when time permits. <laughs> so, um, I would like to get in there two or three times a year, just keep it open. But as the last couple of years, it's like, um, about the third week of July to September 1st. I mean, I've, the last four weeks have been pretty hard at it. Um, we went in around mid, uh, mid August. We sprayed our trails. We've taken the brush trimmer and, um, cleaned out any briars or anything like that that's impeding, um, any possible deer traffic. Um, there's trees that fall over into the trails that, all of a sudden they'll, we go, they'll be using one trail really good and then the tree falls and they'll start going a different, a little bit different direction. So we'll cut those trees up, get that cleared out so we can get them back to following the trails that we want them to follow. Um, so usually August is the, the peak time for us is because you've had all spring or all summer for all that new growth to grow. When you cut it in, um, August, it's not going to have much time to go grow back and everything's getting ready to go dormant for the year. See, I find that pretty interesting because a lot of people are saying stay the heck out of your woods all summer. Um, no, no, you got to maintain if you don't know, Yeah, if you don't know what it looks like right before deer season and yep. you wait until after, it's too late. Yeah, I haven't seen any any negative impact. I mean, the deer are completely different in the summer versus fall. I mean, that's why we usually have September 1. I mean, I kind of broke the rule at my buddy's property today by walking out there and checking a camera all the way to the back of the property, but I didn't have a chance to get it prior to this. So I went out there and uh, pulled the camera and swapped cards on another one. And, you know, it's September 5th, but what the heck, you know, the deer are still in velvet for the most part. Yeah, but I'm not done on my place either, so I hear you. Hopefully that rain that just came through might have washed some of your, your scent away. I'm not sure if you got it over there or not. I didn't, we got some here and there, but I don't, I would say mid-September is the absolute cutoff. Okay. If you have a property that you're managing for, you know, more mature deer where they're going to catch on, that once they lose their velvet, they become a little bit different. Their, um, their personalities seem to change. They're a lot more on alert. Um, I mean, we're out in the property with tractors and stuff all the time, but, that has, I mean, my trail camera show, well, we, we go by with the tractor, we're maintaining stuff, doing stuff, and just before dark, the deer are checking us out. They're right there. Yep. Never, never miss a beat. Now, you do that during October, now there's there's a difference. You'll, you will have deer on trail camera that first time after we've been out there, and then poof, it will go dead. And we, we've noticed the same thing with our or hunting, you know, we, we try to have as little impact as possible. Um, we try to hunt, you know, when the best winds, we pick certain stands. And if we bump deer more than once, we really start to see a decline in um, the deer numbers. So, and it, the the um, quality whitetails, they've done studies on that with, um, I remember reading articles here not too long ago about, how pressure, hunting pressure affects a stand and how long it takes before it comes back to being um, active again. And a lot of that all holds true. Yeah, I'd have to agree. And especially here in Michigan or, you know, Pennsylvania, some of Indiana where these deer are pretty pressured. I mean, you get, you get one shot. And if you blow that, yep. that chance, um, a lot of the times that'll turn a, 
a three-year-old or older deer uh, either nocturnal or he's going to start taking a different route. Right. They usually I mean, don't make that same mistake twice. <laughs> yeah, they just they're they're just different. I mean, this this buck that we hunted last year was five years old last year. Um, the closest I came last year, Thanksgiving morning, I had he was at 60 yards. You know, it's during gun season, and it was 10 minutes before shooting light. The only reason I we knew that deer was there is because he walked in front of a camera 10 minutes before shooting light and we pulled that camera on the way out (laughs) and that that buck he was he had a has a week time frame at the uh, end of october for the last two years he comes through and last year we were studying their pictures we went back to the winds and the the stands that were he was picked up on our cameras we would not have been able to hunt because the wind would have been the wrong direction yeah he he He, sun checked him and knew you guys weren't in there or or what have you yeah i don't i don't i mean yeah he you know, on the on the days he was on the east side of the property, we had uh, east winds, and so we wouldn't have hunted it. And then the opposite, you know, the other days he was on the west side of the property on the camera, we had west winds. You know. Yeah, that's why some of those guys hunt those those. I don't know if you want to call them not not crosswind, but you're kind of flirting with it being a bad wind. Yeah, and, and an off wind is what I'm is what I'm trying yeah, to say. Yeah, you here. want to what's Bill say? He says you want to blow towards them but not at them. There you go. So yeah, I agree. You, you and that really helps. I mean, I, I that's another thing I pay attention. Every deer I see, I try to see if it's going into the wind, quartering with the wind, what it's doing, and it, that I haven't been able to get figure out for sure yet. Um, unless I'm blood trailing, if I got a deer, buddy's deer that. Um, is getting beyond that 100-yard mark, a lot of times they'll stop after that first initial burst and they'll start heading or quartering into the wind. Um, so I know they use that at that time. But, yeah. Okay. It's... Let's get back to that, that buck you, or even even other bucks. How do you lock them down on camera before you go hunt them? I feel like uh, I'd be pressuring the ground <laughs> by walking yes. and checking cameras. So my our our cameras, we are only checking cameras when we are going to hunt stands. Okay. We're not making extra trips out there. I know some people go out there and check a camera every week, and that's a big no-no to me. <laughs> um, the 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 areas that we have cameras, they're very close to the tree stand, so. Um, I'm trying to think. I have at the 40-acre parcel, we have one camera that's about 20 yards away from the tree stand. That's not ideal to access, but it's on a primary run. All the the other three or four cameras that we have are all within a feet. Like you take two, three steps out away from your stand, you can swap the camera um, or swap the card, do whatever you need to do gotcha. without leaving too much scent down. Like so that. we're not we're not making unnecessary trips out in the woods. We also have a couple areas that we um, put a camera in, like in a sanctuary, and we'll put it in there September one and leave it until December. And we just we leave it. We don't go in there for any reason until it's just primarily for inventory purposes to see what came through or see what we missed during the season. And you know it, was, it, it sucks. You know it's hard to do. 
you know, you'll have a branch or something blowing in your way and it takes 10,000 pictures <laughs> of a branch and you're like uh, cussing yeah. yourself That's out. <laughs> but, but at the same time, though, your your camera's only catching things that have already happened, right? So it's not like yeah. most of the time you're you're kind of scouting for next year with the cameras. It, you um, really are. I mean, Drury guys say that a lot, you know, so. Yep. I mean, I was the only reason, um like this buck I missed at my house last year, I would have had them on cameras, but I, w- it, I probably would have been too late because I was only going in and checking my cameras maybe once a week or so. And he came in, thought hey, he was on my property for um, about four days or five days where he spent a majority of his time close by. And that was that window of time. That was it. If I wouldn't have been told that, hey, I seen a good buck across the road, I wouldn't have went and checked my cameras, you know, because yeah. I don't want to intrude in there. So... But yeah, it's I would for for guys that get are getting new properties, um, they're looking at habitat. I'd say to hunt your property for the first year or two, um, before you start going in and making some major changes because you want to get in. That was a couple things I did wrong. You know, I didn't hunt the property first a couple times. You know, for the first year or so to get an understanding where the deer movement is already at. Um, you go and you make big changes and you can hurt yourself before it takes a while to get everything working again. Yep. Observation oh. as uh, yes. our friend Phil would, would say. Yeah, that's, um, I've heard that a lot from a lot of people too. Take a year, maybe even two and just study where the, the deer are already moving or I guess I mean, kind of what I did in my case, start out right after season in the, in the spring or late winter do all your scouting then, you kind of at least know how they move through there as well. I mean, you didn't watch it happen, but you can see all the the signs. You can kind of determine it that way if, right. if you don't have the patience to wait. <laughs> yep. I mean, some guys get lucky. They have great – there's properties that are just absolute gold mines. I mean, there's the, the deer, the train features, the deer that come through it. They'll have big bucks, and it's just phenomenal. And there's other properties that you have to really work at. I mean – um, my property, I, I understand how things work. The 40 and the other 50, you know, we've been hunting these for over six years now. Um, the 40-acre piece, it wasn't until about, I'd say, two years ago where we realized, hey, you know, the deer movement we're seeing both on stands and the cameras is you, you zoom out from the property from an aerial view and you really – you see that the area that we're seeing deer is a natural terrain funnel. I'm not talking like you know, a 50-acre parcel. I'm, we're, we're talking like a, a one-square-mile area oh, where yeah. you, 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 the, the small scale, you don't see it on the small scale. You really have to, after the two, three, four years of seeing the same thing over, you start to understand, hey, what's different here? What's going on? Why are the deer doing this? And you start looking at the bigger picture, and that's kind of when it clicked last year that now we're in for almost five years into hunting the property, we're saying, oh, well, all the improvements that we did in the front of the property weren't as beneficial as if we were to do things in the back because the deer are already in the back of the property and stuff. So it's we found that it's hard to pull bucks to the front half of the property. Yeah, no, you're just trying to enhance where they're already working, right? It's just exactly. going to be easier to do it that way. I know we've talked about that with a couple guests. Um all right. Yeah, so we we, re- we really try to now we've 
try, at least myself, I really try to focus my efforts around my stand locations. I I find a spot where I want, where it's going to work best for me for wind direction and access, and then I build the habitat around that to get the deer to focus on it. You know, whether it's hinge it. cutting or the travel corridors, scrapes, tie downs work great. Um, that, I mean, that's a, one of the best tools to have. And what's that? Um, tie downs and mock scrapes. Um, any branches that you can tie down or overhanging like a hard edge or anything like that, pull them down and um, we spray the ground in um, end of July or early August to kill all the um, vegetation underneath to create a mock scrape and the overhanging wraps, the deer will usually start it up as a scrape and we've got a few that have become community scrapes that are active all year long. Awesome. Yeah, no, I, I'm a huge mock scrape fan. Um, I tried out some buck fever synthetics last year. I, I know the owner there is a, is a friend of mine and I was like, oh, okay, yeah, this is, we'll try it, whatever. And I mean, I just did it one time and the deer took over. So I was pretty happy about that. Um, I didn't spray the ground though. That's an interesting idea because it keeps, keeps it clear. Uh, all year, you, I kind of like yeah. that idea. Yep, we always spray it is to keep that that ground. You want that bare dirt for them to be able to paw in and urinate in and keep it. Um, you know, we, usually if you use the ground clear or something that has the pre-emergent in it, that'll kill it for the the rest the primary season where you need it dead, and then into the spring a little bit. But you have to do it every year. Okay. Okay. Um, anything else you want to cover? On that, I'd like to get into kind of winding this down, and I want to know your fall hunting plans and your habitat plans coming up because I know habitat season starts not long uh, after hunting season. So, yeah, I think I just want to cover before we get into that. Um, well, I guess for fall plans, uh, usually how I do it now is. Um, like we we put our trail cameras mid August by September one. We'll let them soak until we um, get to our do our first hunts in October. Um, we're starting to hunt a little bit more, and at the beginning of October, we'll try to hit that first one, first or second cold front, um, make the best use of uh, the weather. Then, hopefully, we can get a cold front. So we'll hunt those. We'll access do a card check on our cameras. Um, Usually by the beginning of October, the bucks have um, moved out of their summering, summer patterns and moved into their fall patterns. Uh, and you'll start seeing bucks show up that you wouldn't have seen yet during the year. So um, we'll hunt a couple times at the beginning of October and we'll leave it alone until the that, uh, pre-rut or that seeking phase. Um, unless we have a deer on camera that's really showing themselves. So we don't really hunt that much but the hunts that we do we are trying to go in for when all the things are in our favor weather um wind everything like that this is the right time of the um the season so going to kill. Uh, yeah that's pretty much what we're trying to do anymore we're not sitting on these um these stands where we could possibly be blowing out deer or anything we want to go exactly go in for the kill yeah. <laughs> So and then uh, then usually depending on how the season goes, if we get skunked out of any decent deer and it's pretty bad, then um, I'll be out there during uh, about Christmas time, starting doing my habitat work. <laughs> okay, and what do you have uh, planned for 
this Christmas? Any projects oh, already? Or yeah, there's one that. Yeah, there's well for uh, this year at the 40 acre piece. I wanted to enhance the stand area. We got some uh, hinge cutting, and it, I mean it's really. We we kind of left it off this year because we want to see how the enhancements that we did this year. We put a new stand up in the corner of the field. We got some Egyptian wheat planted. We added a new travel corridor. We're trying to do all these extra little tools to put it into one. And the card card check I did today shows that it's working very well with the dough. So if the bucks that we see or a buck comes through that um, follows what they're doing, then it's going to be a slam dunk as long as we do our part. So. We're going to hold off on doing the hinge cutting aspect of that until um, after season to see how the deer uh, react to it. Because there's uh, an area that it gets into the woods that I feel that the any we might be missing some potential, um, I guess, getting the deer in close enough. Cause they, so if they do that, then we're going to block off that um, trail that they're using and physically move the deer closer to us through hinge cutting and fencing and screening. So that's kind of a key one that we got. That'll probably take about a weekend to do. But, yeah. Awesome, man. Well, I appreciate you coming on. Um, I'd like to know how people can reach out to you, find you and your product if uh, if they want to purchase one of these hooks. Yeah, I go to uh, the habitathook.com or nationscreations.net. Both are the websites to take you there. Um, my email is nations underscore creations at hotmail.com. Um, I got all my contact info listed on the website too. But, uh, yep, got the online store there, and people can reach out to me, ask me any questions that they might have. Awesome, Nick. Well, thanks for coming on, brother. I really appreciate it. I hope to make it out to your property sometime and, and take a walk around. I don't know if you'd be yeah, up for you're that. Yeah, you not too far. Where are you at? I'm in Brighton, but my property is in uh, just, let's see, I think I'm just east of you over towards Springport. So. Oh, yeah, you're not far at all. No, I'd be I'd be able to swing by and say what's up. Uh, yeah. I'd be love to do that, man. It sounds like a, a cool place to check out. So. Yeah, just get a hold of me. Thanks again for listening, everybody, and especially to Nick Nation for coming on the podcast tonight. I really enjoyed that one. Um, I think it's probably because I can relate so much to the small property, the pressured hunting, which I'm sure a lot of you guys can relate to as well. Um, Thank you guys for listening. I really appreciate it. Thank you for the good reviews you've been giving us on iTunes and on the website. If you don't mind and you haven't done that yet, Please go on there and subscribe and leave us a five-star review, some feedback. We'd love to hear it from you. And uh, what that does is that helps push us up the the podcast list, puts us in front of more people like ourselves who could possibly learn and benefit from the podcast. So love to see some good reviews. We will be drawing some winners for some more decals coming up soon off of the reviews. So if you leave a good review and we pick your name, we'll uh, send you a free decal. So go ahead and do that. You can find more about us on Facebook.com slash Habitat Podcast where we put up a lot of more or more of our pictures and videos of what we're doing. Also, HabitatPodcast.com is the website. Go on there and you can have every episode on there. And um, you know what, guys? I'd like to thank our partners at Packer Max. I used my Packer Max last weekend. The thing is awesome. 
Be sure to mention the podcast when you call then. You get 10% off. And uh, Outdoor Devotion, thanks for sponsoring the Habitat Podcast. And uh, you know what? We'll be back again real soon, guys. Get out there and enjoy your woods. And thanks for tagging along as we try to become better habitat managers. Have a good night. Thank you.